Dear Lord Baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call them. And of course, my wife, Carly, who's a stone cold fox. Also, want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your Baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist palm. He was a man. He had a beard. Ricky, finish the grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row. Okay. Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! That I have accrued over this past season. Also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace. I just want to say that Powerade is delicious mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. Well, that's something, yeah. We'd like to welcome you to uh, probably one of the more unconventional uh, Palm Sunday services that you've ever been in. Um, in Genesis 1, God created humanity in his own image. And just like Ricky Bobby, we've been returning the favor ever since. Creating a God who looks like we want him to. Um, more often than not, we pray to a God who, who doesn't demand anything of us. And who, truth told, looks a lot like us. We live in, a, in an age of social media where if you want to find people who think just like you do, it's not very hard. You can, uh, you, can, you can seek them out around the world and surround yourself with nothing but voices uh, that are very similar to yours and almost, in a sense, create your own reality. Um, <clears throat> if you shop around, you can find somebody selling a Jesus 
who looks, thinks, and acts like you want him to. There's a gentle shepherd, Jesus, with a lamb looking very benign, always comforting. There's a good time, Jesus. No problem, bro. There's an intellectual Jesus. There's a vegetarian Jesus. There's an inclusive and accepting Jesus. There's a hipster Jesus. There's a Rambo Jesus. And there's an American Jesus. And the thing is, when we worship the Jesus that we've created, we aren't worshiping God. We're really worshiping ourselves. I'd like you to hold on to that thought for a little bit. This isn't a new phenomenon. It isn't even sort of new. This goes back pretty much to the beginning. The word says that without faith it's impossible to please God. But I would ask this morning, faith in what? Faith in what God? The God that you've created? Or the God of the Bible? The God that you would like? him to be, or the God that he actually is. We've all got expectations, every one of us, who we'd like to be, who we want other people to be, and who we would like God to be. It's fine to hope. It's fine to have aspirations. It's fine to have dreams. But when hopeful thinking doesn't match reality, the results are never good. And they can sometimes be deadly. As an illustration, when I was a young man, I wanted to be a professional race driver. And uh, the problem is my hand-eye coordination is not particularly great. And my mind tends to wander when I'm behind the wheel. I like to drive, but to be honest with you, I'm not very good at it. I actually had a couple of accidents in vehicles long before I ever had my driver's license, just moving them around the barnyard. I'm pretty lousy at it. No matter how much I wanted it, I was not able to be what I thought I would be. Everybody loves a kitten. Everybody loves a kitten. They're cute and playful and harmless. But there's a subset of people out there who think if a little kitten is good, a great big kitten would be fantastic. And so they get a little kitten, cub, lion cub, and they bring it into their house and they bottle feed it. And it's so much fun and it's so cute and it's eventually... A 500-pound meat-eating machine living in their house. If you um, if you have the time, sometime Google uh, wild animal pets or exotic pets uh, and find out how many times people bring large cats into their home. Not just large cats, but monkeys and 
and other wild animals into their homes, and it ends very, very badly for them. I sometimes miss things, but there's no mistaking this for a good idea. Jeannie and I live in an apartment right now. Um, It's a long story, but we're living in an apartment while we build a house. And um, the apartments are nice, um, but there's a lot of people, and we're all essentially living in in very small boxes. Um, We're all together right next to each other. And apparently everybody in America, except for Jeannie and I, or at least everyone in Morton, thinks that owning one, two, three dogs and having them in their tiny little boxes right next to each other is a great idea. Um, I came into the stairwell the other day and started coming up the steps, and coming down to meet me was... Uh, probably a 90-pound woman being dragged along by a 100-pound Alaskan husky as it, as it was headed for the door. She was holding on like this, and, we're, and we're, I, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, I wonder what part of that is a good idea. <laughs> but the expectation that she had was that this was going to be magical, you know, that, that, that uh, this was a companion, she was living with her, it's going to be so great. You know, but the reality is she works and this is a big dog, and it's in a small box. Wishing it were so does not make it so. We've all got expectations. Israel had expectations as well. You know, God made some pretty big promises to Abraham. Children as many as the stars in the sky and the sand and the sea, without number. He promised them everything that he could see. God kept his promises. God kept his promises. And Abraham's descendants, they made promises too. They made lots of promises as well. But see, the thing is, they didn't keep them. They did not keep the promises that they made to God. And as a result of the broken promises of Israel, Abraham's descendants, they had a problem. They had a war problem. They kept losing them. They kept losing wars. And when they lost wars, they would be either overrun or carted off to slavery. And in the midst of this, in the midst of of these times where they were they were hauled off, God promised the people a Messiah, a Savior, if you will. And the prophets began giving an outline, not all of the information, not everything that pertained to who this Messiah would be, but enough that the people would recognize them when when they saw him who he was, his genealogy, where he would come from, what he would do. And the people started filling in the blanks, as we all do. When there's partial information, the people began filling in the blanks with their own expectations, with their own expectations of who this Messiah would be. 
this Messiah that they could have faith in. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. But where's the faith? And who? And what God? And what Messiah? And eventually, in the fullness of time, God sent his only son, Jesus, fulfilling every prophecy made about him, coming from a line of kings and yet born in the stable, born at just the right time and yet when no one was looking for him, fulfilling every prophecy but meeting no one's expectations. Hometown, little backwater, the perceived father, just a carpenter, mother, a teenager, not even married when they're born, when Jesus was born. No one's expectations. So, I got married when I was about 12. <clears throat> Actually, I was, I was 22. My wife was 18, just barely. And really, I married Jeannie uh, pretty much before somebody else could. Um, it was sort of a race, and uh, I, I got my foot in the door, and, um, you know, uh, we barely knew each other. I knew her about as well as you can know somebody that you are very, very, very attracted to. Um, I knew enough about her um, to have an idealized knowledge of her. And the things I didn't know about her, I just sort of filled in the gaps on with my own expectations, what, you know, what, what this would look like, you know, that uh, everything that I didn't know about her was going to be like this, you know, and I was going to flesh it out. Um, the thing was, she's, she's a real person with flesh and blood. And it didn't take very long after we said I do for both of our expectations of each other to bump up pretty hard on reality. The idealized version that we had of each other was not very real. But we made promises. And I've been married now, we've been married now for 31 years. And I can say without any reservation that my life bears almost no resemblance to what I thought it was. Almost none. If you'd have told the 18-year-old, 20-year-old, 22-year-old version of Stan that what his life would look like at 53, I would, I would, I would say you're nuts. It's never going to go like that. But you know what? It's better. It's better in every possible way. Better by any metric than I ever could have hoped for. Israel was looking for something, for this Messiah. They had an expectation of what he would be. A commander to wage a rebel war against the people that were oppressing them. They were overrun. There was a foreign power over them. 
They were, they were an occupied people, and they had a promise of a Messiah. What they were looking for was someone to raise an army and lead them to war. And what they got was far, far better, but not at all what they were looking for. What are you looking for this morning? Is it the God that you have set up in your own mind as what you need? I've decided what I need, and the God needs to look like this for me this morning. Jesus fulfilled and exceeded every prophecy ever made about him, but he did it in a way that the people found to be unacceptable. In Exodus 3, back with, back with Moses, the people are in, have just come out of slavery. God has done some amazing things and brought them out of slavery. No, I'm not yet. Moses, Moses is talking with God and says, I'm, God has told him that he's going to bring his people out of, out of slavery and that he's going to use Moses to do it. And Moses is doubtful of this, and he says, I don't even know your name. How do I know your name? What do I tell the people when they ask your name? And in, in Exodus 3, God tells Moses, suppose I go to, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. God was sending Moses to rescue the Israelites from slavery. But Moses wasn't who the Israelites wished he was. And God wasn't who the Israelites hoped he would be. The Lord led them out of Egypt through Moses in spectacular ways. But the Israelites didn't like the way that they were being taken out of their captivity. They didn't like who it was that was taking them out of captivity. And once they were out of, once they were free of Egypt, they didn't like where they were. They didn't like the food that they had to eat, and they didn't like where they were going. God went up on the mountain, or Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God to get more information from him. And while he was away, the people said, you know what, he's gone a long time. Let's build a, a God and we can worship him. And so they threw their gold together and made a calf. The God that they had was not the God that they wanted. They wanted what they wanted. And God was very displeased with this, and he said, you know what? You will not see the promised land, but your children will. You will die in this desert. I am who I am. I am who I am. Not 
what your wishful thinking would presuppose, not who you would like me to be. I am who I am, is the God that we worship. And then there was Jesus, the Messiah, in the image of the Father, defying every stereotype and expectation. Not at all what the people were hoping for. Not the rebel commander, not raising an army. Performing miracles, gathering huge crowds, and then saying some really, really off-the-wall stuff. It's like a train wreck to the people. They want no part of being on it, but they can't look away. In John 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. 5,000 people eat and have their fill. And the Bible said that the people recognized the miracle and they were ready to make him king by force to take Jesus and say, now, now do this thing that we want you to do. Be the king. Here's the sword. Jesus knew this, and he withdrew. The Bible says he withdrew again to a mountain to be by himself. If he is going to save the world, to save Israel, he's doing it wrong. He's doing this all wrong. He's got the people. They're on his side. They're looking for him to... He could use a Dale Carnegie class, don't you think? He really needs to figure out how to win friends and influence people. He's not doing a very good job of this. But this is his MO. That's what he does. He works a miracle, and then he doesn't capitalize on the moment. The people are just waiting for him to fill their expectation of him. They wanted Jesus in their image. They want a Messiah in their own image. And then they're ready to follow. And he will not. If you read the the Gospels with an open mind, you will find again and again and again Jesus being God, being I am. He, he will not be boxed by the people's expectation of him. Later, as he, after he walks across the lake. He goes to the temple and he starts teaching again. He's fed the 5,000. He went to be by himself. The people went away. He walked across the lake. He goes to church. And in John 6, 26 and 27, he stands up and he says, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The people are kind of offended because they've been insulted. So they demand another miracle. That that miracle you did out there, that was pretty cool, but I want another one. Prove that you've got the right to insult us. And Jesus starts speaking in riddles. And he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me. And still you do not believe. And then he says... I'm the living bread come down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, and I will give for the which I will give for the life of the world. So much bread. What in the world is he talking about? And after he's got their heads spinning, and they're completely baffled. He turns and he says, you know, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. This this is offensive. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he says this. He's not making this more clear. He's making it more difficult. He's not paving a big, wide road. He's cutting the road that's already narrow down to barely a footpath. He says it's confusing and offensive, and he doesn't explain anything. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in the kingdom of God. And then he sits down. And he asked his disciples, does this offend you? Does this offend you in John 6, 61? Of course it does. Everybody leaves. All the people he fed that were looking for another miracle, they're gone. All the disciples that had been following, the dozens of disciples that had left everything to follow him around, They left him too. He's down to 12 guys. And Jesus gets to the whole point of what he was doing. I believe that it's the whole point even of the miracle that he had performed in feeding the 5,000. And he turns to the 12 guys that are left and he says, what about you? What about you? 
And the answer is probably my favorite verse of the whole Bible. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I don't get this. I don't begin to get this. But what else are we going to do? You have the words of life. My faith is in you, Jesus. Not the Jesus that I hoped you'd be, but the Jesus that you are. Do you ever get a gift that you were not looking for? Christmas time, you've got a you've got a, a list. You're a kid, you've got a list. And the stuff on your list, it's 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 junk. It's it's stuff from the Far East that's going to be broken before the day is over. You're a kid, you've got this list, it's the latest bauble, you're hoping for it. Christmas morning comes, you open the gift, it's not what you wanted. It's not what you wanted. And you smile and say thank you. And, and the, the thing of it is, is that gift, it's better. It's better than what you want. I once gave my adult children a a freezer for Christmas. You know, they each got a a chest freezer, a small chest freezer. And I I don't think that there was any magical fuzzy moments there on Christmas morning um, with, with that. But you know what? My daughter was listening to the first service out in Denver online and she texted me and she said best gift I ever got that I didn't want the freezer and I said to her you know what the best gift that I ever got that I wasn't looking for my kids I didn't plan any of them I did not plan any of them but they're the greatest gift of my life they're my joy they provide me with grandchildren it it rocks And, and the thing of it is is that None of us were looking for these things, but they were far, far, far better than anything that we were hoping for. What about you? Are you at a point where you're ready for Jesus? Or are you just ready for your idealized version of yourself? They were face to face in that moment with I am. I am who I am. Not who you wish I was, not who you hoped I'd be, who I am. Which gets us to Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. In Matthew 21, it is... uh, it's an amazing story. Um, you know, as John said uh, in, the, in the opening remarks, that this is the day of the triumphal entry. This is the day where Jesus comes to town. And, and it's a big moment. People are throwing their coats in the road so that the donkey that he's riding on it doesn't have to step on the ground. And within five days, 
these same people are screaming for blood. They're asking that he be killed. And we think, how in the world could this happen? How in the world could this happen? Those people are idiots. Well, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and said, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is it. Now is his time. Now is the time when he can really gather his army. And that's what they're looking for. The people are still looking for the Messiah that they're hoping for. They're still looking for Jesus to tick the appropriate boxes for them so that they can get what they want. And Jesus has come to town And now's his time. And the first thing he does, the first thing he does is goes to church with a whip and cleans out the money changers with a whip. And the next thing he does is he tells two parables, stories about the people themselves. And they're not good. They're not good stories with a happy ending. He insults them. And within five days, the entire city turns against him. They've had enough. The very people who'd thrown their coats in the road are now screaming for his head. Matthew 21, 42 is a great verse. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is an Old Testament psalm. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And in Matthew 21, 44, it says, Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. He is the rock of salvation. He's not, he's not the concrete, molded form of rock. He's a rock. You don't get to pour him into a form so that he looks like who you want him to. He's a rock. You will either be broken against the rock or you'll be crushed. I am who I am. The name of this series is Beautiful Name, and that is a beautiful name. I am who I am.
It's the name that God chose for himself. We have many descriptors of God, but this is the one that he chose, chooses for himself because he knows that we meet him on his terms. It's born into every one of us to be self-determinant. And that's a road that leads to nowhere but destruction. When I conform God to my own image, I'm not worshiping God, I'm worshiping myself. I am who I am. And later in the week, on the night before his death, Jesus ate with his disciples, his friends, one last time. And he gives them the bread and the wine, and he reminds them of what he said in the beginning about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That thing that he hadn't explained, he's now living out in front of them. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and after he had given thanks, he said to them, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of of sin. And he said, as many times as you come together, do this. That same thing that he had offended the people with is the sacrament that he invites his children to partake in. That very thing that was an insult to the people is the thing that he asks of us to accept him as he is wherever that would lead us, wherever that would take us, whatever it would mean or not mean. Because what he has for us is exceedingly, abundantly more than we could ever think or ask for ourselves. He is the rock of salvation, but we will be broken against it or be crushed by it. His body was broken for my sinfulness for my desire to rule myself. His blood was poured out for the sin that was an offense to him. And it's perfect. It's absolute perfection. And not at all what I was thinking. Not at all candy-coated, lamb-carrying Jesus that I was looking for. I've been walking with the Lord since I was 15 years old. And just like, just like being married, I had no idea where this was going to take me. Not a clue. I had some hopes and I had some dreams. And this is better. This is better. Life that Jesus has in store for each one of us is better and more than you could ever hope or dream for, but it's the life that He has.
God's plan for you. And in order to partake in this life, you do it on his terms. I am who I am. We've got the Lord's table this morning because we're gathered together and we're remembering at the beginning of this holy week, at the beginning of this holy week, what the Lord has done for us. We do not begin to understand the fullness of the body and blood of Jesus. But we do it anyway. Because we take him on his terms and not our own. If that's what you can do this morning, if that's what you're about, if you're given to Jesus, come what may, this table's for you. The act of taking communion is remembering what he did on our behalf and submitting to him on his terms. I don't want to be like the fanboys in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, cheering one day and screaming the next like those 12 disciples and say, where else am I going to go? You have more to give. God bless us this morning as we share.